verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him, lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut his ear, cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all, that's a reference to the apostles, they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, and having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. That's verse 51. So we'll stop there for now on the text. So this is that next scene of the night. We've gone from the garden with Jesus and the apostles to the mob with Judas leading them. And you have two, you have two groups. You have Jesus with the three saying, Arise, my betrayers at hand. And he's moving toward the mob. And the other eight would have been merging with him. So Jesus plus the three and the eight, the eleven. And then here's Judas, the one missing from the twelve. He's leading the mob. And they're coming out with soldiers. And they're like, they're going to go to war. And these two groups come together. Now, what we read in the Gospel of John is as they came to Jesus, Jesus said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus. And at that point, they were all knocked down. They all fell down. So Jesus did something supernatural to make them all fall down. So in that one moment where he submitted to the Father's authority to go to the cross, because he just prayed, not my will, but thy will be done three times. If there's any other way, let there be another way. And as he submitted to that, yet even in this moment, by John's account, Jesus is still demonstrating his power and authority in that situation where these guys are knocked down. And you think, wouldn't that get their attention? But you can't reason with unreasonable men. And that's the way life works, or unreasonable women. There's times when people are so worked up, there's no reasoning with them. And no matter what supernatural event happens, they're just going to go the way they're going to go. But we, that's recorded for us so that we know that. And of course, Jesus said that he could have called down, asked the Father for legions of soldiers, of angels, to come on his behalf at that moment. But he didn't, because he's submitting to the will of the Father in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Now, Peter had the sword. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus said to bring a sword, which is interesting detail, but it, whatever the purpose of the sword was, it wasn't for cutting off the servant of the high priest, Malchias's ear. We know that. Peter cut off the ear of the servant, Malchias, and we know that Jesus reattached the ear supernaturally and healed him in that moment. Combining this text with these additional pictures of what was going on, we get greater detail to understand more of what's happening in the, the briefer account here in Mark, we want to fill it with these other accounts because they tell us a lot. That Malchias is important because later on when the servant girl accuses Peter of being associated with Jesus, we're told that that servant girl was connected in relation to the servant whose ear was cut off. So if you don't know it, when Peter denies the Lord in the three denials, one is literally a person who was connected to Malchias. So how is that for the Lord bringing things full cycle to you when you said that you would stand if even if everyone else failed him, failed Jesus. So we, we paint this fuller picture. Now, again, Jesus moved toward this crowd. And this is the one thing that I, I 
want to touch on one of two things in this part of the text. So he moved toward it. And there are things that are so that we have to face. There are difficult things we have to face. There are court cases, you know, family court, criminal court, civil court. There's uh, sometimes when you get in trouble with the Melarus or whatever, and like, you know, you're part of Canyon Lake and people can't agree and they think your yard should be this and you had oil stains from your truck and it became a big deal. There's all kinds of things that bring people to contentions that will cause you to lose sleep. There might be a situation at work where there, there's being layoffs and people are being cut back and or absolutely people are being cut back or salaries are being cut. There's different things that can happen. There, there's, there's moments that just seem pretty heavy sometimes. There's times when you go to a family gathering and it's going to be really serious. Is it, it might involve the elderly parents. Can someone take care of them or they're not taking care of them and someone else has to intervene and take care of them and maybe they're going to be better off in assisted living or they might even need to go into memory care because they're, they're, they've got dementia that becomes Alzheimer's and you have to face that. There are certain days and certain experiences that are pretty gut-wrenching in human experience. We can think of Jacob when Esau was coming at him and how Jacob was coming from Padamaram and he's got the rematch with his brother who the last he heard 20 years prior, he was going to kill him. And he couldn't sleep all night and he divided up all of his goods and he wrestled with the angel of the Lord and he still was just terrified to see Esau. And we can get so worked up and how many nights sleep have we lost in our human experience because we're so fearful or anxious about what might happen the next day, this confrontation, this meeting. And I've had these meetings in the sanctuary. I've had them in the office. I've had them at Calvary Costa Mesa. I've had them at Calvary Vista. I've had them in Virginia and Vermont. I've had this things and that things and you've had them too. Or maybe it's a ministry and you've been asked to speak at the, the funeral and you've prepared your notes and you get up there and you're like this because you're not used to speaking. And there's just different things. There are things that we face in the human experience that you cannot get away from that are, are unpleasant. Now, see, I didn't mention a wedding day because a wedding day is a different kind of nervousness. That's a happy kind of nervousness. Of course, if you're the pastor, you're still extra nervous because people are wound pretty tight on a wedding day if you never notice that about as tight as they can get. It's a happy day for everybody but the pastor because he's got to steer the ship and he's got to keep things on track when people are really like mock level of adrenaline. But it's still, it's a happy day. But there are things that are very difficult. There are just things in life that are just so profound and so heavy and so radical in the human experience and they can seem overwhelming and sometimes they come right at you or sometimes you do lose a night's sleep over it or a week's sleep over it but we're told not to fret about tomorrow. Sufficient are the things for today. We're told to stay in the moment. Jesus told us that in Matthew 6. And my point is this. Jesus said, let us arise, my betrayers at hand, and he went right toward him, just like David went right toward Goliath. We often talk about in the business world and sports world of paralysis by analysis and overthinking things. David didn't overthink anything. The battle is the Lord's. Someone's got to break the stalemate. This is the right thing to do, and we're going to do it. And went right toward it. And they talk about in crisis situations that there's 5% of the population that generally runs toward the crisis. When the Boston uh, Marathon bombing happened, there was 5% of the people that ran toward the scene to bring relief. 95% of the people ran the opposite direction. 
in Jesus' name, we want to be the 5% that whether we have a difficult court case, we have a difficult situation at work, we have a difficult situation in the family, that we, we wake up and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us arise, whether it's our betrayer, our denier, or the worst day of our life in the human experience, that we can say like Job that God is greater than all this because before I heard of him, but now I, knew, now I know him. And that's how we need to be. Faith and fear are opposed to each other. And in submitting to the Father's perfect will, Jesus embraced and went right toward it. The rejection, the beating, the crucifixion, and the hope of the resurrection. For the joy set before him, he went right toward it. In fact, Luke 9 tells us, even going toward Jerusalem, his face was set like flint toward fulfilling the Father's will. And for this purpose, he came. And on that flashpoint of the very purpose of his coming, the Son of God who holds the universe together, that very moment, this is the flashpoint because the hostility has been there, but this is the flashpoint where he has submitted to the Father's will three times in prayer. And he's got the 11, and here comes the betrayer, and this is the flashpoint, and he moves right toward it in all the confidence that the Lord gives us when we have to move right toward our situations of difficulty that would strike fear, anxiety, and overwhelm us. He went right toward it. He embraced it. You know, it's no fun being a dad sometimes with Luke trying to scare him. I could scare the kids so good, like running around the house. I, I was, you know, I was, uh, I was a dinosaur. I was a bear. Bear was the best. Just bear, whatever bear worked with the girls. They'd run and hide. And of course, when you do this, you never, you never really, they're hiding under the bed and you kind of shake the bed, but you, you know, but you, and, and you never really growl them. That's no fun. So you kind of like you brush their foot, you know, that's like, ah! and that's how you do it. And, and that's what you would do. And I used to play shark in the pool. Same thing. Once you get them, sharks over. It's no fun. Like it's, it's that like this. Well, Luke, our youngest son, Luke, no matter what I was, if I was an orc after Lord of the Rings came out or a dinosaur after Jurassic Park or this bear, it, it never worked because he would run right at me. He, he would turn around. He'd be running like the girls would be like, ah, Hannah and Leah would be running in the house and Luke would turn right at me and he'd come right at me. He, he would go after it. And that's, that's the way we want to be. He's, he's still kind of like that. I guarantee you in a, in a crisis situation, he's the guy you want next to you. He's going right after it. He's not running from the fight. He's going to run straight to it. I just love how Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him, despising the shame, fulfilled those things that the Father had called him to. And I don't want to miss that in the darkest moment that he took on in his human flesh, in all of his humanity, this had to be the most anxious moment because once the rejection starts and the trial and the beatings, you're in it. You know, you're in it. It's in it. It's the anxiety like the bear chasing the bear in the house. It's the almost being caught, but this is it. And he just went right to it. And I, I just want to encourage all of us, whatever we're going to face from now to the day of Christ Jesus in our life, we're never going to face it alone in Jesus' name. And he's, he's going before us like the pillar of fire at night for the nation of Israel and the cloud by day with Israel. The angel of the Lord goes before us and behind us. And whatever you face, he's there with you. Like David, the battle is the Lord's. And whatever we need to face, if it's false accusations and betrayal or all these things, we'll never stand alone. Paul even said in his last epistle in 2 Timothy, all have forsaken me, but the Lord did not forsake me. And he delivered me from the lion. He will always deliver me. It's a good thing to be encouraged by our Savior 
when he says, arise, let us be going. Arise, let us be going. And he went right toward it. He, he just stayed true to the Father, courageously like we've seen in church history for thousands of years. The martyrs, the saints, the women, the men that have just gone right to everything God's called them to do and trusted in his plan, however it would play out. Whether it's Jim Elliott taking the spear in the side by the Aka Indians or whether it's Amy Carmichael just persevering to the end in India trying to rescue girls in child prostitution. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. And when you face this, this moment, when we face this moment in our life, and Judas and the mob are coming, you get up and you rise and go right after it. Because Jesus is with us. And he is the great high priest who knows that moment for us. And he's been preparing us for that moment. He'll see us through in that moment. And he'll complete whatever his eternal purposes are from that moment. And we can be sure of that. We can embrace fully those greatest fears through faith in Jesus Christ. And we can arise and move right toward him. Also, we see where he said, you could have done this in the daytime, but you're doing this because it was their hour, the hour of darkness, we'd call it. But he said all things had to be fulfilled. He says that in verse 49 in the scriptures. And when we think about those challenging moments and experiences of our life, the difficult court case, the difficult family situation, the difficult neighborhood situation, the difficult community situation, those things that we face at work and just society, the things that come in our wheelhouse, if you will, of life that, that are difficult and, and arduous and painful and unpleasant there's things that must be fulfilled. It may not be the scriptures and Jesus fulfilling the scriptures of the Old Testament, but there's no random thing in our lives as the followers of Christ that God does not have a plan in it because all things do work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. And so there's a purpose in it. And whatever it might be, it's allowed by the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And we're going to trust in his will. And that will is to, again, as we know, to mold us and shape us like Christ in the experiences of life and give us depth to become like Christ. When Cheryl Pye was with the women last week, she talked about, as we behold in a mirror, the Lord. And evidently she said something that really ministered to my wife because it really ministered to me. But and I believe it was from this. My wife and I have had so many conversations about the Lord. It's been really fun lately going on walks and stuff but how that passage from second corinthians now we see dim is in a mirror but we're all being changed from glory to glory it's already our glory that's our destiny is the glory of christ and we're going to see that in colossians chapter 3 this saturday it's not yet revealed what will be but when he but when he comes we will be with him in his glory that's our text saturday night so we behold his glory as in a mirror being dimly we're being transformed from glory to glory so we see a fading us a fading adam a fading eve but through the eyes of faith, we see Jesus in his glory, and he's transforming us from glory to glory. And that transformation process is happening through the events of our life, whether it's justices or injustices, what's fair or unfair, a physical affliction or a physical deliverance. We can praise the Lord in the affliction because he's with us, or we can praise the Lord because he brought us out of the affliction. And who's sufficient for these things? Why does God heal, heal with Paul's handkerchief, but doesn't heal Paul when he prays three times to be delivered from his infirmity? Who can know such things? Let God be true and every man a liar. As the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above us. Why do some people who don't value children have lots of children don't take good care of them? Why do some people who want to have children are unable to ever have children? Who knows such things? 
But let God be God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, but the things, secret things belong to the Lord. And again, for the follower of Christ, we're being transformed from glory to glory as in a mirror. And all of our experiences serve a purpose to make us more like Christ. And that is the objective, to let those things work in us, that character of Christ, to the benefit of time and to the benefit of our own souls for what God has for us for all eternity. It all serves a purpose every day. Serves a purpose. And every day has its opportunity. And for the follower of Christ, it's to make us like Christ. Doris Day passed away this week, and she said something that was an interesting quote. She said, make the most of each day because you won't get it again. That was an interesting quote. I don't know where she was at with the Lord, but I thought that's very applicable for a believer. Make the most of this day because we're not going to get it again. It's here. And you just, want to, you just don't want to throw away days because it's a bad day. Oh, I'm going to go on strike today with the Lord. I'm just going to give up on this day and concede the white flag. No, you stay with it because it might be your last day. So just because it's all gone wrong before 2 p.m. doesn't mean you throw up the white flag. It might be your last day at 5.30 p.m. So finish strong. The scripture must be fulfilled. And there's a work of God's work, word in our life to make us like Christ in every human experience. That's the beauty of the human experience for us. We can say like Job, though I've been tested when I come through like fire, I'll be purified and I'll be like refined like gold. That's a perspective we need to have. There's no randomness. Now, there's randomness in how God may work things uniquely for you, but there's not like dumb luck or bad luck or something with the Lord. It all is filtered by the Lord. And we know that God is good and God is light and him is no darkness at all. And it's going to have a good plan. As Job even said, the end that the Lord intended is a good ending. And we might see it in time, but absolutely, I guarantee you, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you most certainly see it in eternity in the day of the Lord. Now we read on. So all forsook him. We pick it up in verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silence and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. All right. So here's our next part of this text tonight. Part two of three parts. So Jesus is brought before Caiaphas and the assembly there. It's, it's between midnight and 6 a.m. This is all happening. Verse 55 gets our attention. Well, Peter's still there, right? Verse 54. But Peter followed him at a distance. So he's, he's coming back into the storyline. But he's, he's in the scene, but he doesn't have any speaking parts in this scene. He's just in the scene. Comes back to him, though. Verse 55. It's, it's hard to get past. It's not my main application from this passage, but I just can't get past it. It just jumps out at me. 
the chief priests and all the council, they sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They sought testimony against Jesus. Maybe at work you've had people seek testimony against you. Maybe you've been falsely accused at work. Maybe you've been falsely accused by family members when you're doing something good and they're accusing you of doing something evil. Maybe you've been falsely accused by the neighbors. Maybe you've been falsely accused by society, strangers. This, okay, you think about the cross and the physical pain, but this is a different kind of pain. As the king of the Jews who came for his own people, fulfilling every scripture ever promised about the Messiah, and they're seeking, the chief priesthood should be identifying him as the Messiah and telling the people, this is the king. Instead, they're seeking false testimony. If you ever in a situation where people seeking false testimony against you, I can only say pray and give it to the Lord. And, well, it says Jesus has been tested in all points and can relate to us. Obviously, in some points, he's, he was tested in the wilderness with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Like we know, uh, Adam was and failed. Jesus was victorious. But he doesn't know what it's like to be 89 having Alzheimer's, right? So, you, you know, but in the general sense, it's a, it's a broad sense what that means when it says he's in all points tested as us. But if you've been lied about, and falsely accused, he re- he's experienced that directly for you and knows who else but the Lord could comfort you in that. This happens. You're living for Jesus. Sooner or later, people will come against you because of your faith. And they might take a half-truth and turn it into a full lie. They might take something that you had good motives on and twist it against you and try and destroy your good name. And God give you wisdom how to, how to deal with that if that happens to you. How many times have I seen ministers attacked and, and slandered? And how many times have I learned from my own life just to not really give a defense? Jesus, for me, Jesus always like, he said nothing. I've tried to go that route almost every occasion. But if you're protecting the flock, you might have to go another route and just say, no, that's not true. And this is the way it is. It's tough. A servant's not greater than his master. And whatever befell Jesus for his obedience to the Father, it's reasonable to think that we might have it come our way. Hey, listen, Billy Graham was slandered pretty bad in his day. Pastor Chuck was maligned by multitudes with false accusations. So you can't be caught off guard by this. And a service is not greater than his master. I don't sign up for this, and I don't think we're going to have a sign-up list for this on Saturday. Who wants to sign up for false accusations? But it's a reality, and we can't get around it. So it's worth noting because it's there, and Jesus went through this for us and for, for our sins. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and like a lamb led to, to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth before the share. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming to the clouds of heaven. So all the injustices of time, space, and matter, including what happened to Jesus right here with all these false testimonies, they can't collaborate. And that's, the, that's kind of the beauty of falsehood. It can never collaborate. It never, it's, it's too hard to remember lies. The truth is the easiest thing to remember, and it never changes. And it's absolute in the universe. It's the lies of these false testimonies versus the absolute truth of Jesus. I am, like I am, like burning bush I am. I am the Messiah the all-sufficient one, the all-self-sustained one. I am that I am. He uses the term I am like 
from Exodus, where God, Moses said, what's your name? What should I say? I am that I am, the all-sufficient one. And Jesus says, I am. Are you? I am. That's who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of the blessed. And the truth of the matter is, you will see me at the right hand of power. In this moment, Jesus is making very clear that once this dimension flips to the next one, you will see me at the right hand of power. It is interesting in the book of Acts when Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7 that he says as he's being pelted with the rocks that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Eternal Son of God, creator, sustainer of the universe, born of the virgin, lived the perfect sinless life to die on the cross in our place. His righteousness imputed to us when we put our faith in him. Raised on the third day according to the scriptures, with the witness of the many for over 40 days, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is, and he reigns, sent the Holy Spirit to indwell each one of us right now in the church age who are born of his spirit, born again. We are the church. We are the restraining element. We're the salt of the world. We're the light of the world. And we're the kingdom of God on earth. We're citizens of heaven, and we're ambassadors of Christ. And we represent him until he calls us home. And then... He comes to establish the kingdom. He comes for his church, and then he comes with his church. And there in Zechariah, we're told the whole world will see him, even those who pierced him, and he will establish his kingdom. He will come with the clouds of God. He ascended into a cloud, right? When he ascended there in the book of Acts chapter 1. When the Father spoke and Jesus was glorified in the mountain transfiguration, there was the cloud, the holy cloud. There's a holy cloud that led the Israelites by day. This isn't like marine layer in June. It's a different kind of cloud. It's a holy cloud that God has used in this dimension to transcend the dimensions. And when Christ comes, God can just go multidimensional on this universe, increase a whole other dimension if he wants to, so that every eye sees him, because every eye will see him. He doesn't need the all-seeing global government to allow the world that's rejected him to see him. He can just... He can do anything he wants. So how the whole world sees him in his coming in fulfillment of Zechariah, it, it can just be as simple as he comes in that cloud and he just does like quantum dimensions. And no matter what time zone you're in, you just got cubed and you see the king and he's here. He's coming. And when we step into eternity, every soul, they go before him. And we know this. There's a Lamb's Book of Life for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And then there's the books that are open. And you're either in the book or you're in the books. And the book is the book of life. The books are the book of condemnation because the books are open and everyone who they're open to are cast out from his presence and they're condemned. They're the books of unbelief and rejection. He's coming. Caiaphas, Pilate, all these guys, the Roman soldiers, they're part of the greatest event in human history. But they're forever known for their unbelief in that time and the rejection of the king. If we're the last generation, we're part of the greatest generation of all history. We're the church before the trumpet sounds. The king's coming back. Return of the king. And I don't mean Lord of the Rings. I'm talking return of the king. The king of kings. This is who he is. I am, he said, the son of God, the Christ, the blessed. And you will see the son of man. 
Every eye, excuse me, every eye will see him, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they'll either bow the knee in time through faith in Jesus or they'll bow the knee in eternity. The last thing people will say when they're dismissed from his presence in eternity into outer darkness to implode on themselves is they'll confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will confess that he's Lord. See, you can deal with hardened criminals who've committed the worst atrocities in human experience, and they might deny it to the very end. They might deny it to the very end. They might have no sign of remorse or repentance. They may be filled with venom, even when they, you know, are executed, capital punishment, or they roll over and die in, you know, incarceration. There's some that are remorseful. There's some that aren't. You can't make a criminal who caused great catastrophe on people's lives say he's sorry to the best of my knowledge because again this is the age of free will even with the lord self-determination but when you flip to that next dimension the last thing they will say before they go in outer darkness is jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father they will confess that he is lord and they will know his judgments are perfect and just for their sins there's no court of appeals. There's no ninth court of appeals. There's no other court of appeals anywhere else. He's the king. And the father judges no one, but has pointed all judgment to the son. And you will see me coming in power at the right hand of the power. Verse 65, we close it out tonight. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him. And to beat him and say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also are with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, and then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Not only that, we're told in Luke's account, he had eye contact with Jesus. So when the rooster crowed the second time, he had the eye contact with Jesus. It's different than the eye contact of Judas the betrayer coming up and, you know, the Middle Eastern greeting of a kiss on the cheek there. It's a different type of eye contact. See, Judas was openly betraying the Lord with his multitudes. Different eye contact. Rabbi, Rabbi. Peter gets critiqued over the sword incident. But, you know, in some ways, I do give a little bit of credit to it. Because that's a big multitude, and, they, and they've got big sticks. They've got a big army, and he had enough in him to, to drive a sword and cut someone's ear off. Like, that's usually the initiation of combat. Like, if you're going to get in a street fight, you pull out a knife and you cut someone's ear off, that usually means this is going to go on and escalate. And he had the courage, in a sense, to do that in his own strength. But again, the whole lesson for Peter this night, particularly more so than the others, is that if anyone thinks they stand, take heed lest they fall. Pride goes before a fall in a haughty spirit, before destruction, as it says in Proverbs. And he had to learn this lesson that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Peter had to learn that lesson. He's going to be a great shepherd of the flock. 
He's going to be an amazing leader of the early church. He's going to preach with such boldness on the day of Pentecost, being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to preach with boldness his entire life to the best of our knowledge. He would still be a man. He'd still feel peer pressure, as recorded for us in the book of Galatians, when the when Paul came up and the Gentiles, that whole story that's there. But he's amazing. In Acts 15, when there's all that contention, he resolves it being a spirit-filled man and being wise. And at the house of Cornelius, there in Acts 10, he's an amazing spirit-filled man. He's a shepherd, and he brings the world into the church of Jesus Christ. Not just the Jews, but all ethnicities, all nations are welcome. And he realizes that lesson there in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius. He, He learned valuable lessons from his failure, his fall. And unlike most of our failures, his is probably the most well-known one in human history. And for 2,000 years, the church has been like Western world, Christian cultures. Peter's denial is like just so well-known. You just can't get away from it. Like it's just so, it's probably one of the greatest human failures that's recorded for us that we can know of in historical writings from the New Testament and even beyond with sermon illustrations and so on and so forth, even from the first couple centuries of the church. We have failures. We like our failures to be private. Are you like me? I like private failures. I don't like public failures. I like private failures. You know, like no Facebook footage, no Instagram, no tweet deletes that are reposted because someone got back and they could hack them and then post them. You know, like that's the beauty. Even a fool's kind of wise when they hold their peace. And the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And I don't like public failure. Just don't like it at all. I don't like public embarrassment, and neither do you. So we're talking the same language. But in Peter's case, it was valuable. And Jesus, of course, restored him and gave him the chance to say that he loved him three times and to tend the flock, feed the sheep, and feed the lambs, as recorded for us in the Gospel of John after Jesus was risen and spoke with Peter. The lesson of the failure is to learn from the failure and to rise from the ashes. That's the key. Because if this was the end of Peter, it's a sad ending. He's weeping. There's lots of people that cry over their failures, but they don't get a second chance. How many people leave a courtroom weeping as they're being put away and incarcerated for 10 years, 20 years, for life, five life sentences, or whatever it might be? But his weeping is the good weeping where there was true repentance and remorse. And he's a different person from it. And our failures need to, we need to learn from them. Our failures with the Lord, where we just thought we had it and we didn't, we need to be humbled by those things, and we need to grow and learn from those things, and we need to go forward from those things. The Lord is always forward, onward, upward, right? Philippians, forgetting what's behind, we press on to what lies ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's onward, forward, and upward. We can never undo yesterday. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you kind of glad you can't? Because how are you going to undo yesterday? I can't even barely handle today. Like, I'm just trying to stay in the moment. I just love those athletes who make mistakes and leave them behind immediately because the game's still going and you got to stay in the moment. Like, I just admire that. And you see some athletes where they just melt down when they make the big mistake. They just, they can't, they got to pull the pitcher. You know, they just can't pull it together. You got to pull the quarterback. It's done or the goalie or whatever. It's like, man, you got to stay in the moment. And, and you just, you got you to gotta learn from those mistakes and you got to go forward. His mercies are new every morning. And whatever the mistakes are of the past, we can't change them today. We've got to put them under the blood of Jesus, and we've got to apply the fullness of the Holy Spirit to our lives to find the strength, the promises of his word, to go forward into a new day. So we need to do. And Peter did rise from the ashes, and he did go forward in a new day, and we never see this Peter again. Now Judas, he went and hung himself. 
That is a sad ending. One of the saddest endings of a human life. Again, world famous. All traitors and betrayers are referred to as Judas. I mean, Benedict Arnold, he, when he left the colonial army to go to the British, believe me, you, they called him Judas on this side of the river, the Delaware River. Like, he was Judas. It's the ultimate insult. There was no restoration or redemption for Judas, but there was restoration and redemption for Peter because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and those tears were not just for remorse, but those tears were the gateway to be rebuilt and to go on to greater things and learn from that. And it's a great lesson for us. So I hope you're encouraged by these stories in this text tonight and these lessons that we we can learn from Jesus, the truths about Jesus, the realities about following Jesus, and, and the hope of a new day. His mercies are new every morning. And sometimes I can't wait for certain days to end because I want to get to those mercies in the morning. But they're there at the end of the day too.